Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As a species, we have survived because of stress. And the stress response, which is when the sympathetic nervous system brings us into a hyperarousal so we can preserve life, that's what fight or flight is. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Rupi, where we discuss the most important topics and concepts in the medicinal qualities of food and lifestyle. This podcast is the place to be for anything to do with nutritional medicine and how we can use both food and lifestyle to prevent and manage ill health as well as maintaining your optimal well-being. And my guest today is the incredible Eddie Stern. He's a yoga teacher, author, and lecturer from New York City, and he is best known for his multidisciplinary approach to furthering education and access to yoga, as well as his teaching expertise in a particular type of yoga called Ashtanga. His best-selling first solo book, One Simple Thing, A New Look at the Science of Yoga, examines in clear and simple language the underlying neurophysiological mechanisms that make yoga an effective practice. He's also the co-creator of The Breathing App, which guides users into paced breathing exercises that balances the nervous system, helping to improve sleep and reduce stress and anxiety. And breathing is something that we do cover in this podcast. Now, this podcast was uh, a little bit different to what I'm used to. I'm used to talking about the mechanisms behind why food can have an impact on health. I'm used to talking about uh, other lifestyle means like sleep and exercise. And again, the physiological mechanisms behind why those are effective tools to improve health and um, maintain balance in our bodies as well. Um, This podcast uh, dove into different areas of of things that I'm genuinely interested in, Um, not just the science of yoga and why it works or what we postulate as the mechanisms behind why why yoga is an effective tool for things like blood pressure regulation, which I think is quite well recognized, but also um, the philosophy behind yoga. We even dive into areas of 
conversation that I haven't expected to to cover on this particular podcast, um, given the subject matter of nutrition and lifestyle. We talk about uh, consciousness. uh, We talk about um, some things that I actually found quite difficult to comprehend at the time. And you'll probably listen to that and hear that in my voice and the way I ask questions. And it wasn't until I actually listened back to this podcast and I gave even more attention to what Eddie was talking about that I've actually begun to understand the truisms in what he was talking about. Um, I think you're only really gonna understand what I'm talking about when you reach the end of this podcast. And what I would sincerely encourage you to do is if you do question or you, um, you, you lose track of what we're talking about, listen to this again, actually, because um, I don't think I've actually realized just how impactful this podcast was until I listened to it twice. Um, and the other amazing thing about it is that Eddie has just got the most soothing, calm, peaceful tone of voice. Um, it's it's just, it was very, very relaxing to be in Eddie's presence. And he's just uh, a breath of fresh air, so comical, so lovely. Um, very, very uh, open, and uh, it's definitely been one of the, the podcast highlights for me. Um, and it allows me to take you, the listener, on a journey through more than just food and more than just lifestyle, actually diving deeper into concepts that I'm personally very, very interested in. You can find some of the links to the studies that we um, discuss on the podcast, as well as a YouTube video specifically about the yoga study that he did in New York with African-Americans and reducing blood pressure using yoga as a tool. And that was a control study with the control being general physical exercise. Uh, I found that absolutely fascinating. And the video, which is about five minutes uh, on YouTube, uh, the link of which is going to be on the doctorskitchen.com forward slash podcast with Eddie's uh, episode, um, just really, really painted a great picture of just how powerful yoga can be. It's not for everyone, but certainly as a tool, I, I just think it's something that everyone should experience remember you can check out the recipe that i made eddie over on youtube plus you can find all of this information and more the doctorskitchen.com subscribe to the newsletter for weekly science-based recipes give this a five-star review if you enjoyed our chat and without further ado here is my conversation with the incredible eddie stern how did you enjoy your lunch the lunch was fabulous. Um, the flavors were really vibrant. Um, I could taste the onion seeds um, cooked in there, and um, the potatoes were delicious. And they had really different flavors. Those small little white ones, of, like they're um, they're juicy. They the flavor jumps, yeah. you know. And and, and uh, the purple ones are really beautiful to look at too. So it was a really quick, easy, delicious, nourishing meal. I feel and good and happy good i'm so, glad well done <laughs> i think that's the most emphatic that anyone's been about yeah. lunch. You, you've answered my questions about onions and, <laughs> and cutting boards <laughs> you don't have to use soap and uh i've learned a lot <laughs> that's great and i've learned a lot ever yeah. since you stepped into the studio like straight away you Gave us a, um, a recital of part of the Bhagavad Gita. We, you know, we talked a lot about. Yeah, we've been quoting scripture. We've yeah. been talking about Sikhism. Mm, mm. Yeah, which faith, I faith, religion. Yeah, yeah, and I, I've actually, 
I've never really talked about that on the podcast before. The podcast is largely about the science behind um, food as medicine, the uh, the science examining lifestyle as well. We've talked a bit about yoga in the past as well. Um, and this is why I was so excited to have you on, because not only do you blend the science of yoga, but you, you don't shy away from the origins of yoga and what it was designed for. Um, your book is fabulous. I've been reading it religiously over the last two weeks or so. Um, and one of the things that I picked out from it was um, how human beings uh, have always had stress, whether it's in the modern era, which is full of social media, and what we uh, now believe stress to be like, we've always had it. And that's essentially what yoga was used for as a, as a sort of counter to what we've seen. Yeah, because as a species, we have survived because of stress. And the stress response, which is when the sympathetic nervous system brings us into a hyper arousal so we can preserve life, that's what fight or flight is. So when people say fight or flight, what they're saying is preserve life. At any cost, don't die. Mm. Whatever's coming after you, you know, whether it's an angry email or an animal in, in the forest or jungle, you know, stay alive. Mm. So that same thing that was happening in the jungles or savannas or wherever is the same thing that happens on the street of London, the street of New York, streets of Bombay, uh, everywhere mm. that is preservation of life. Yeah. And, um, and that's really subtle too because preservation of life for us could mean not getting insulted, not getting offended or feeling that our sensibilities have been trotted over by someone who has judged us or criticized us or or feeling shame about things. So this whole range of emotions that causes us to go into a stress response are all things that we're using to protect life, which we largely identify with as our identity. And everyone comes to yoga from a different path, right? You, you, you came to it uh, out of you know, turning into a vegetarian through a friend of yours whilst you were working in New York. What led you to actually make that huge step and go to India, uh, as you described in, in your book? A lot of times in life you do things without knowing why you do them. Um, and as a, you know, as a sort of a ex-punk rocker and a goth and a skateboarder, um, a lot of the things I did were for no discernible reason. Like, you know, young boys do, do stupid things on skateboards and BMXs all the time. Like, what would drive someone to skateboard as fast as you could towards a long flight of stairs, jump your skateboard up in the air, land on a railing, slide down the railing, and then land on the other side? Like, is there any logical reason for that? No, other than the thrill of accomplishment. And that's why People have been doing stupid things like that for a very long time. Yeah. Jumping out of airplanes, you know, getting married. It's the thrill of accomplishment. <laughs> <And> <laughs> so I think that, um, you know, the thing that led me to yoga was I was actually looking. I was on a spiritual quest, even though I didn't have the, the language for it at the time. And I was looking to be healthier and happier and more connected. And I was looking for meaning. But the thing that led me to go to India was just that it was the suggestion was made by my yoga teachers and it sounded like, oh, here's a good idea or, you know, maybe I should just try this. Yeah. Like skateboarding, you know, 
um, off a cliff in Central <laughs> yeah. Park. Uh, let's try it. Yeah. That's all. And when uh, you were there, I never thought I would go back again. Oh really? Yeah, I thought I'll go to India one time and then ah, I come home. Okay. And, you know, then we'll then we'll see what happens. Yeah, because it seems to have spiraled since then. So you went to India. You you learned. Uh, yoga, yoga from a yoga master I think you actually came back to um, India to, to learn because they weren't teaching at that time or something well I went to India in 1988 I went to the Shivananda Yoga Center uh, it was an ashram in South India in Kerala I spent a month there and then I traveled through India for about three and a half months after that came home started teaching yoga and then the next year I went back to India um, to go help them at that course and then the next year I went back again. And before you knew it, I was going to India like every single year. Wow. So I've basically been every year since 1988. Um, from 2009 to 2011 or 12, I skipped a couple of years. Okay. But otherwise, it's been once or twice a year since then. And has your understanding of what yoga is and what it represents and why we have it as a system of thinking about things or perhaps something that actually I I heard you in conversation with Deepak Chopra talking about how yoga transcends a thought system. Uh, Yoga is the closest you can get to the science of consciousness, which I thought was quite a nice way of describing it because it's not like mythology or religious teaching. It's actually something that gets us a bit more connected to the idea of the universal being, if you like. Um, But has your idea of what yoga represents and why we have it as a system or whatever you want to call it um, changed over that period of time that you've been practicing? Yeah, it changes quite a lot. Uh, In India, they have a metaphor, I guess it is, of peeling an onion that you keep peeling one layer after another, after another, after another, after another, until there's nothing left. And... um, A.G. Mohan, I wrote about this in the book, who's a yoga teacher from South India said, but yes, you peel the onion till there's nothing left, but the one who remains is the one who peeled the onion. And so I think the one who peeled the onion is um, the impulse we have to know. And that is the observer, the witness aspect of consciousness that is the basis of who we are and of how we connect and how we perceive and everything. And Yoga Sutra Patanjali said, the Of the ways of having a correct perception about something, there are three different ways. One is by your own direct perception, and then another is through inference, and another is through testimony, like scripture and text and things like that. So to know who we are and to understand things, to find meaning, the best way is not to infer it from other people, not to pick things up from books or things that we've read, but to examine ourselves. And through self-evaluation and all the different inward practices we can do, we'll have a deep, deep experience of ourselves, of consciousness, of awareness, of whatever you want to happen to call it, of God even. And then that is who you become. And so the journey to that is going to go through different layers and, and you're going to traverse. You know, When I was younger, I was very free. I could just wander around India with no possessions and... You know, I'd go there with $500 and I'd come home four or five months later with $100 still in my pocket because you could live very cheaply and, um, and you didn't need much. And so I thought that I was uh, like a holy person. You know, I thought I was like a, a quasi-monk. I had long red hair and I had a long beard and, you know, I was wearing white all the time. Yeah. Like, you know, a red-haired, you know, disciple of Jesus or something. <laughs> so, um, and then and then I fell in love and I got married and then we had a baby and so my identity shifted from being this very um, focused yogi to being like a husband and being a father and then really just trying to be a good father 
And then what that leads to is a lot of survival issues. Um, I need to make enough money to send my daughter to King's College in London, you know, and I need to pay the rent and I need to do all this, have health insurance and all that. And so then, and now our daughter's in school and my wife now is on a meditation retreat in Burma for three weeks and, um, and uh, I'm, um, you know, continuing to work and do all that stuff. And, um, but our emphasis now is shifting a little bit again. Like, so our daughter's not home every day. We don't have to cook for her every day. And she's, we're watching her become a young woman. And so now we're in a phase of our life where we're shifting more towards our spiritual practices again too. But for that 18 year period, our practices were more like being parents and you know taking care of the house and now it's shifting slightly again so that's another layer of the onion yeah. and um and now so i'm 52 years old now my body is different than it was when i was 25. i don't do the same intensity of yoga practice i do and i use yoga in a different way now than i did then it is more for um expanding my field of awareness of inhabiting my body in ways that I hope will sustain it for a long time so that when I'm in my 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, may I make it so long that I can be independent. I can mobilize myself. I can walk around. I can do the dishes. I can cook. I can take care of myself. So, so the way that I'm practicing now is twofold. One, to make sure that I have a good future in a healthy body. And two, that I use the practices in a way that creates a feeling of awareness, of meaning, of connectedness, um, so that I can continue to be skillful in the body that I'm inhabiting. And uh, 25 years ago, I did yoga um, for some of those same reasons, but also I wanted to be really good at the poses because they're fun, frankly. And, And it's cool to do stuff with your body. And so, but I don't quite do those. I don't do it in that same way anymore. Yeah. You mentioned something there, identity, which I want to come back to because you mentioned identity and its um, relationship to Avidya and Vidya uh, Mm -hmm. as well, which are the concepts of ignorance and knowing, um, if I'm right in saying. Yeah. The word Avidya, commonly translated as ignorance, means not a complete knowing of who you are, but only a partial knowing. Uh And Vidya is the full knowledge of who you are. So... Uh, I wanted to talk about that because I think I'm con- on a very personal level. I'm constantly um, struggling with the video, uh, as, th- as I think everyone, everyone, everyone is with uh, our video. With our video, have you got to a point where you're transcending that, or do you feel like it's you're still in a place where you're constantly battling with who you want to identify as, or what you want other people to perceive you as? Well, I definitely have not transcended anything. Um, I. And I think that one of the things that is a good practice to do is to be very accepting of who you think you are. Because quite often who we think we are is someone that we want to push away from ourselves because we find fault with ourselves a lot. Um, and But even if who you think you are is like a wonderful person, then embrace thinking that you're a wonderful person. And if you have shame or guilt or, or you're constantly criticizing yourself, that part of you that you might criticize that you're not disciplined or that you have a hard time keeping up with the vows that you make to yourself, embrace that part of yourself too and, mm. and give it love and pull it in. And because when we fight against ourselves, then we widen the gap. But when we embrace those part of ourselves that we don't like and say, hey, I'm going to give you a big hug, you know, then love 
creates togetherness yeah. and togetherness creates growth and so if we really want to grow we have to embrace the difficult parts of ourselves and not push them away and, and try to bury them somewhere else and is it something that you've began to you've learned very early on in terms of your practice or is it something you come to realize later on later on because in the beginning you know as i have said before like i was i went through these different phases when i was a teenager like we all have of identifying very um uh enthusiastically with different tribes punk rockers goths hippies and then yogis and then the you know the last tribe that i was really identifying with was like being a yogi and that is also a personality trap and it probably of all of them it was the worst one because in that personality of trap of thinking that i was a yogi i thought i was better than everyone else who didn't do yoga you know it's like how some people follow particular diets and they think you know this diet is better than everyone else on the planet who does not follow this particular diet Absolutely. and this is the problem of the mind it does this it latches on to things that we think will be the best thing that there is why because we're doing it yeah. and what is this this is preservation of life yeah. this is all that response to holding on because if we don't hold on to that thing who will we be yeah. so the not knowing who we are is the scariest thing in the world so we hold on to things that we aren't and when we hold on to things that we aren't and we m imagine that they're real that is what avidya is but when we know who we are then we don't hold on to the things that you know are not real and then we're free so that's the basic process of observing ourselves where we latch on to things and demand that they be right mm. the need to be right the need to be the best you know the need to know everything all of these kinds of, of things so um i um no i'm i'm very much a work in progress yeah, yeah. and i don't mind being a work in progress anymore yeah uh there you know like many people i have moments of clarity and i have moments where i experience things that shift my perception of myself and of the world um uh, lately there was a practice that I was doing where um, at a certain point I really had a deep experience that I didn't exist as a body you know I existed as a as awareness or as being but I didn't exist as a body and that hasn't stayed as my lasting waking reality but it stayed enough in in a visceral part of my memory that I can kind of still feel like oh yeah you know the body is an accessory to to awareness or to yeah. consciousness so you have these little insights into being or into who you are and those insights stay with you and if you keep practicing in the same way or reflecting on them all those little insights begin to compound themselves so over time they become more and more of your reality um, but if you push them aside or forget about them or just go back to your old ways and you kind of lose those insights yeah i guess it's like the process of constantly coming back to it and, uh, and i'm yeah. guessing those moments of clarity or extend for longer periods of time perhaps and permeate through a bit more of what you do on a daily basis yeah they might they might i would like that yeah. i mean who wouldn't <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so i have great hopes yeah. i have great hopes for myself <laughs> and everybody yeah. Uh, we connected um, uh, during the Game Changers uh, premiere. Um, I was invited by a friend of yours as well. And um, one of the things that struck me straight away is that your interest in the science behind yoga. And you told me about this um, study that you were involved in 
um, with a small group um, who are Africa, uh, African-American background uh, and how yoga, a uh, period of yoga, I can't remember how, I mean, you could tell us in a second, but the uh, amount of time and, and how it impacted their blood pressure. And I thought that was fantastic for two reasons. One being um, the science of yoga and actually trying to understand what the physiological mechanisms behind yoga and how that has um, uh, actual effects on parameters of health like blood pressure. But two, also because you were using a cohort um, of participants that are fantastically underrepresented in research per se, but also, but in particular, wellness research and actually these um, free accessible modes of health that we all have access to. Um, so I wanted you to talk a bit more about that because I found that absolutely fascinating. Sure. Uh, this was a study that was authored by my colleague, Dr. Marshall Hagens, and he and I have gone on to work together um, since then for the past 10 years, we've been collaborating. And now we run the yoga and science conferences together. And his interest was to do a study on yoga and African-Americans with prehypertensive conditions. Most of them, I believe, were over 55 in the study. And um, because of the um, composition of blood cells, the difference between African-Americans and Caucasians is that they will absorb salt, I believe, at a much quicker rate, which leads to prehypertensive or hypertensive conditions uh, in a different way that it does for Caucasians. And he wanted to see if yoga would help for that. So they had yoga twice a week in a class and three times a week at home. No lifestyle changes whatsoever, no dietary changes, nothing else. And in a 12-week period, we saw remarkable changes. I think overall there was a five to seven mercury point decrease in their blood pressure and the sleeping diastolic blood pressure decreased also, which apparently is a very important marker. So, um, and they felt great and happy. And one woman, we did a video of it and you can see it on YouTube on the Chopra well, said that she you know, went to her doctor and her doctor said, what did she be doing different? She said, I've been doing yoga. And she said, you know, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Yeah, you know? yeah. That's amazing. So, yeah, that was a very interesting study. Was that the first time you decided to step into the world of research and actually um, uh, sort of interact with uh, people from the, or uh, researchers from conventional medicine? Or is this something that you've always had the idea? No, of? that was the first time I'd ever done anything with science. Uh, I hadn't, you know, I'd been very focused on yoga um, chanting, ritual, philosophy, spirituality, no science whatsoever. And um, so that was another one of those things like when you ask like, well, why did you go to India? You know, it's like skateboarding down a flight of stairs. Yeah. Um, why did you do the science study? Seemed like a good idea. Marshall walked into the school and asked me if I would do it. <laughs> yeah. We had never met. Yeah. And I said, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, this sounds good. And um, and I've learned a tremendous amount from him over the years. Yeah. It's been really very cool and very eye-opening. And that's really one of the things that led to, to this book. Mm. Because in the book you talk about, you know, your interactions with physical, physical therapists and medical doctors. And it's perhaps through the understanding, uh, or those interactions rather, you begin to understand the science of why yoga works in so many different ways. The poses, the breathing, the positions, and how that relates to our nervous system. One thing that Marshall talks about is that science is storytelling. Uh -huh. And that if you, say, do a good study 
and you can tell a compelling story about it. The way that you create the narrative will be the way that it is perceived and read. And, and then you need some substance to it, of course. So he said that science is basically competitive storytelling and yoga is another type of storytelling too. Whether we talk about mythology or we talk about the nadis or chakras or the, you know, the stories behind the asanas or anything, it's all storytelling. And there's no reason why one storytelling is better than another storytelling if both of those are aiming towards knowledge, um, liberation, relief of suffering. All of these types of things are like, those are really good things for humanity to have more of, especially relief of suffering. So um, I already had the yoga storytelling part down pretty good. And frankly, a lot of it wasn't very satisfying because there aren't a lot of answers. Um, you know, why should you do this? You get asked why you, all the time, why should I do it like this? Well, just because it seems to work. Okay, fine, but why does it seem to work? That's the kind of storytelling that science can fill in for the people who are interested in that. Some people don't care, they, they take it at face value. I did for a long time too. I still basically take it at face value, okay. but and you know I do, I don't really question it. I know that yoga works, I know that it's good for you, I know that it connects you to a deep, deep part of yourself. But I also really enjoy the storytelling of science and the language of science and how things are examined because it sharpens your intellect and it sharpens your way and expands your way of looking at people in the world that we live in. So what do you say in medical school that the eyes don't see what the brain doesn't know? Mm -hmm. I, mean, I know yeah. you, you yeah. know that one. Yeah, yeah. And so when your brain is trained to see something in a particular way, like someone walking into your office and you've been trained to see that, oh, without them even talking, I know that they have this particular thing going on. So that's now a skill that you have because you've trained your brain to perceive something in the world that you didn't perceive before. So then what happens is, so your brain is trained to see things that you, and someone helps you to see them, or you get an insight so you see it differently, and then you always see that. And that's your new way of looking at the world. And there's like a, a myriad of ways that we can continue to do that in all different sorts of ways. And that, you know, that helps to make us better people or better communicators, better healers if you're a doctor, um, better yoga teachers if you happen to be a yoga teacher. And um, so science uh, for me has uh, been enjoyable that way because it helps me to look at all of this stuff that I've been doing for such a long time through a new set of eyes and to understand it in different ways. Yeah, on the subject of the, the eyes don't see what the brain doesn't recognize, it's also perhaps improving uh, your ability to converse with the scientific community that might have been traditionally skeptic, um, uh, skeptical about the whole process of yoga. Um, and it also encourages us to communicate together as one sort of health system that is ultimately looking at trying to alleviate the suffering of multiple of many people. Um, I find the science of yoga particularly fascinating, but like you, I also know inherently that me moving my body in a certain way on a daily basis is going to help me. And, and having that storytelling or that explanation or the reductionist mechanistic view as to why yoga works does sometimes help me uh, convince my colleagues, but also convince myself. Yeah, it does. And another thing too is it like, so everything inside of our skin and hidden by the bones is exactly that, it's hidden, we don't see it. So we don't see the synapses firing in our brain and we don't see the oxy oxygen exchange in the lungs through the blood. 
we don't see any of these things. And um, so to be able to describe an intimate inner working of that which sustains us and keeps us alive, I think is a valuable thing. And the yogis didn't shy away from it. They called them the nadis, they called them the chakras, they called them, you know, all sorts of different things. They didn't have the language that we have now. So there's, I don't see any reason why we shouldn't use this language to explain things that we can't see because it's natural to wonder, how is it working? How, how does a thought form? How does a memory, you know, become uh, fixed inside of me? Well, no, we can't see thought, we can't see memory. Um, but we can see blood flow into the brain. We can see different parts of the brain working. We can see all sorts of things that make us think, well, if I do these postures and breathing in a particular way, it's going to have this effect on my brain, on my cardiovascular system, on my renal system. Yeah. You know, and if I meditate in this particular way, it's going to have a very positive effect on the vagus nerve, and on controlling inflammation levels in the body and all these types of things. So these are all valuable things to know, especially if you want to help make people better. And um, so I don't see any contradiction in it whatsoever. I don't think yoga will explain science. I don't think science will explain yoga. They are two different methodologies that exist within their own parameters, but they correlate with each other and they support each other. And I think we can use them both to expand our experience of being. As someone from the outside, I almost see them converging together, if I'm honest. So uh, I see greater interest in the scientific community trying to understand postures and breathing and why those might have an effect. You mentioned the vagus nerve, for example, um, but also baroreceptors and chemoreceptors uh, that change or are stimulated in different ways depending on how we breathe and how we move our body. And it, there's just so much science behind it now. It just seems like they are kind of converging. And that's why you're seeing gut health researchers or gastroenterologists actually recommending breathing techniques as a way to treat everything from IBS, IBD, and even anxiety as well. Yeah, there's a lot of research on all of those, especially on anxiety. Mm -hmm. And well, one of the reasons might be is that there are a lot more people doing yoga these days, and a lot of those people happen to be doctors, <laughs> researchers, scientists, and, and healthcare workers. So uh, this is something that, that you know, Marshall and Satbir Khalsa say a lot, like, you know, there are a lot of people who might have been hippies in the 1970s doing yoga, who then became doctors and researchers. Yeah. I mean, Ram Das started off as Richard Alpert, and he was a psychologist at Harvard. Mm -hmm. And Timothy Leary, they were both working in the university. So, yeah. Yeah. and so, and what they did was sort of, you know, change the consciousness of an entire generation through LSD. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there is a lot of convergence, mm. and there is, there's definitely, and in India there's a tremendous amount of interest, and there has been for a long time since the 1920s, yeah. researching yoga, holding conferences on science and yoga. So you know what I'm doing with with Marshall is not a new thing; it's following in a long tradition yeah. of people who have been looking at the convergence of these two worlds. Swami Kovalyananda in the 1920s said. You know, yoga works. There's nothing better for your nervous system, your endocrine system, cardiovascular system, your sense of well-being and spirituality. Um, but for people who aren't convinced of that on its own, they need scientific proof. And so we can measure these things and show them. But one of the things that we aren't able to measure so far, but perhaps we will in the future, 
transcendent states of consciousness, you know, what causes those? Um, does that occur in the brain? Is consciousness a, um, a, a result of brain activity or is brain activity a result of consciousness? Um, you know, these are the hard problems of consciousness, which is popular in the philosophical worlds that I'm definitely not going to answer. Uh, yoga has its own particular answer for that and Vedanta has its own answer. But from a scientific perspective, this idea of, of consciousness and matter, that's still an open question. How does yoga describe that? Classical yoga, Patanjali yoga, describes them as two distinct entities. And they're both eternal principles. So consciousness is eternal and infinite. And matter or energy or nature is eternal and infinite too. So these two things exist um, as two banks of a river that, you know, never meet but are connected by the flow of water yeah. for lack of a better metaphor so in classical yoga purusha is pure consciousness prakriti is nature they are both infinite they both exist in non-dualistic vedanta advaita vedanta everything is consciousness and everything that we see is a permutation of consciousness mm -hmm. um, so consciousness uses um, you know, awareness to create the mind, the mind then creates the brain, the brain then perceives reality as, yeah. as the brain can perceive it, which is a limited version of reality. In fact, what we perceive is not reality at all, but only the very small bandwidth of the colors we can see, the sounds we can hear, the taste we can taste, the smells and the touch that we have sensitivity for. But that's very limited to the human experience. Some, from a non-dual perspective, uh, consciousness that we experience now is how consciousness perceives things when it's in a human body. So this is consciousness as a human experience, but when consciousness is not um, within the confines of this body, maybe after our death, then consciousness will experience itself in a different way, in a different form. And we don't know what that form is necessarily now. Some people have near-death experiences. They get a taste of that. Everything was light. Everything was love. Everything was perfectly free. Um, experiences like that mm -hmm. so consciousness in a body will experience the world in a human body like we experience it consciousness not confined to a body this is spoken of in yoga sutra too is the disincarnate beings will experience consciousness in a different way uh, cats and dogs and bats and worms and trees and flowers and clouds will all experience the world in the way that they experience it but that's how consciousness will experience it through those particular forms um, but the consciousness itself is just the witnessing aspect, the experiencing aspect. And the experience is identifying with the filtration system. And I think you make an analogy in the book where you're typing on a computer and you, you say, you know, this isn't, uh, I'm not typing on a computer, I'm typing on a manifestation of an idea that happened to be in Steve Jobs' brain. And then and that has now manifested itself into this computer over a series of different iterations along the time is that is that what we mean by in terms of manifestations of consciousness yeah that can definitely be one that we live in a constructed world of a human mind basically mm -hmm. so everything in this kitchen right now has been thought through a human mind created and now we're living in the reality that someone wanted us to live in how everything is placed here your stove it's an electric it's a convection oven right it's not gas and we have a sink here and the washing machine here and the table here and in the lights are above us and there's a window over there someone thought about that yeah. and they put it together and now we're living in it so are we living in reality or are we living in someone's imagination 
we are living in someone's imagination that has been taken has taken the form through builders and a lot of other means as a structural thing, as a solid thing. So we take this solid thing to be reality, but um, but it's not. It's a construction, and so on a on a level which is if we examine and the Buddhists talk about this and the non-dualists talk about this as well that if you look at this table of wood and you examine it closely it's made up of of atoms and if you look into an atom an atom has a proton and nucleon neutron and, and a proton electron and neutrons and there's and they're mainly empty space and so in the same with our physical body as well we are made up of cells and cells are made up of molecules and molecules are made up of Atoms and atoms are made up of their components and they're mainly empty space. So we are largely empty space, but we seem to have a form. And this table is largely empty space. It seems to have a form. So those two things can exist simultaneously. That the formless, that empty space, which is, you know, nothingness for lack of a better word, can exist at the same time as form exists. And you can identify in other ways. So the Buddhists will say that because this table has no inherent form because it's largely empty space, it doesn't have any inherent individual existence. Therefore, it's interdependent with everything else that exists in the world at the same time. Uh, nothing has any inherent independent existence. Um, so that's, what they would say, that's where they would say it's empty because if it has its own independent existence, then it will be full, discrete. But nothing does um, if you examine it closely enough. So if we examine ourselves closely enough and we see that on an atomic level we're mainly empty space and we begin identifying with that emptiness, we might identify with our being in a different way than if we think, I'm my body, I'm my name, I'm my personality. This is something that I need to protect at all costs. And in order to protect this body, personality, and form at all costs, I might be aggressive towards you. I might be aggressive towards the person next to me. I might start a business and in order to keep my business to protect my personality, my name, my form, and my livelihood, I might be aggressive towards someone else's business or religion or country or whatever else it is. So the root of violence and the root of aggression and animosity is again, we go back to preservation of life and a misidentification with form that really has no inherent individual substance in and of itself. And, uh, and I hope I'm not getting too complicated, but, and then another way that, uh, both the Buddhists and the non-dualists will look at it is that even from a material point of view, we don't exist independent of the world around us. Like we need the planet to walk on, first of all. And we need air to breathe. We need the sunlight to grow food in ourselves and get vitamins from. We need the rains to fall so we have water. We need people to help grow food and deliver to our supermarket so we can buy it and cook it and eat it. And we need people to film podcasts so we can talk on them and put them on YouTube. So we don't do anything independently. We exist in a, in a large mix of interdependent relationships. And we forget about those relationships when we identify with ourselves purely as separate beings. So part of the yogic path or any spiritual path is to recognize how we don't exist independently. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh calls this interbeing, that we exist with other beings um, as part of other beings too. And to live that way is the kindest way to live because then we will respect all other beings as our own body. And the same 
way that we would protect our own body, we will protect other beings as well. And that includes animals, the planet, the environment, the things that we use, mm -hmm. recycling, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Um, when we recognize that we're all interbeing together. Um, so separation is the disease of mankind. Yeah. And uh, a lot of the work that Stephen Porges does with the vagus nerve and the way we express emotion and things like that through the vagus nerve has to do with what he calls co-regulation. That um, my facial expressions, you'll read them and you'll respond to them. My tone of voice, you'll hear it and you'll respond to it. And so we co-regulate ourselves with kindness, we co-regulate ourselves with aggression. And so when we understand how to self-regulate through yoga and through meditation and through food and sleep and exercise, when we learn how to self-regulate ourselves and be the healthiest we can be, the most understanding we can be, see that we are interbeing with everyone else, I'll behave that way with you. And that will cause you to respond to me in that same way. And then I'll respond back to you in that way and we'll have this feedback loop of co-regulation, which leads us towards our, our highest good, for lack of a better word. Yeah. And so this is a lot of, when we talk about the vagus nerve being supported and stimulated through yoga and all the associated practices and the microbiome and everything, uh, that's because not just does it make us healthier, but it makes us interrelate better in social ways with the world around us. And we are social beings and we are beings that live interrelated with the whole world around us. We want to do it in the best way possible. Yeah. Forgive me for um, trying to simplify. <laughs> no, so I, I, get, I think there's something in my birth chart or something that makes me get overcomplicated very quickly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but uh, are you trying to say, are you saying, if I can summarize it, if we recognize the emptiness in everything, we can identify with the emptiness in ourselves. And that is a way of communicating across uh, living things, non-living things, and actually makes us more connected to the world around us. It's an emptiness of independent existence. So the Buddhists will call it emptiness, but they say empty is only full and full is only empty. So in seeing that emptiness, then, and I'm not a, a Buddhist scholar at all, so normally I talk through the yoga lens. I don't know how we got on Buddhism so much. But um, so when we see that we're empty of any independent separate existence, we see that we are the fullness of the entire universe existing together at the same time. Uh, that might not be expressed in a way that Buddhists would agree with, um, but even from a Vedantic perspective, you could say you have this verse, Purnamada Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachate, Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnameva Avashishate. So that is whole and this is whole. And even if you take something out from that whole, that little portion that you took out from it is also whole. So wherever you look, there's only fullness, there's only wholeness. Um, so even if you see that, and what that says in the same way is that everything is full, everything is whole. And in that, everything exists together without any independent, separate existence. And that's the emptiness that the Buddhists are talking about. Okay, because you are empty of separateness but you are filled with fullness of interbeing. I mean, it, it kind of um, resonates with me quite a bit, um, the connectedness of everything. Um, because I, as we spoke about before, I was raised in, raised in the Sikh religion. And the very first um, sentence in our holy book is Ikamgar, which is essentially uh, the oneness of everything. Everything is one. Um, Wahi Guru. Wahi Guru, exactly, yeah. Um, which 
Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't identify with any particular religion. I just res- I respect everything in the teachings. But it is quite interesting how everything does become quite singular in terms of the ways in which uh, everything is explained in terms of the oneness of the universe or the emptiness and the wholeness of everything. You are both everything and nothing at the same time. All I know is that right now at this moment, everything that we think exists around us exists. Like you're existing, I'm existing, this table is existing, the tree outside. We're all existing right now at the same time. We're all existing together. We're not existing at different times in different places. That's how I feel about it. We're just all existing together. So we might as well try to behave like it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is pretty hard. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned uh, Stephen Porges. Yeah, Dr. Stephen, Stephen Porges. Porges yeah. polyvagal theory. And the polyvagal theory, yeah. I'd love to talk a bit more about that. Well, what he says is that the, um, poly, the polyvagal theory basically is that the vagus nerve which is our parasympathetic nervous system, or at least 80% of the parasympathetic nervous system, has a hierarchical and predictable way of responding to the outside world. And our nervous system in general, as Dr. Bruce Lipton has said, is that part of us which coordinates all of the communication and information flows of our cellular environment, of which there are 37.2 trillion cells approximately, with the outer environment. So it's coordinating all of these information flows internally with the outer world. Um, Our um, suprachiasmatic nucleus is tracking the movements of the sun so that it stimulates the pineal gland to release melatonin when the sun goes down and it's time to go to sleep. So our brain is tracking the universe basically, or at least our universe, our small corner of the universe that we live in, it's not really a corner. Uh, (laughs) So so our brain is tracking that. Um, We don't have to do anything. So this is one small example of nervous system interacting with the environment. And what Dr. Porges says is that one way we interact is social co-regulation. And this is going to be parasympathetic nervous system responding to the environment in a pro-social way. If we feel, and this is us seeking comfort and connection, if we're not being met with comfort and connection, then we're being met with threat. And if we are perceiving threat, then the sympathetic nervous system will respond with fight or flight to preserve life. And if fight or flight doesn't work and things are really severe, then the deepest levels of the vagus nerve, which are below the diaphragm, will respond with immobilization. And so he says that immobilization is different from fight or flight. So some people say fight, flight, or freeze. And he says, no, fight or flight is one response of the vagus nerve, but immobilization is a deeper part of it. So the nerves above the diaphragm are myelinated, so they're covered in the sheaths around the nerves which give very quick messaging and then unmyelinated below the diaphragm will have slower signals and that's where um, immobilization is occurring. Yeah, It's amazing how much research there is around vagal tone uh, mm-hmm. and how we can modulate vagal tone to elicit different uh, beneficial effects. So there's some work going on in epilepsy where you can actually modulate vagal tone using deep neural stimulation um, to reduce the uh, firing or the excitatory activity of, of neuronal cells. 
Um, there's also a lot of uh, uh, information out there on inflammation as well. Um, Rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah, yeah, which is super interesting. I mean, I, we've had a gastroenterologist on the show talking about um, breathing exercises for IBS and actually uh, lowering uh, IBS patients' threshold for experiencing pain when they bloat, um, which I found fascinating. But that uh, has a multitude of different effects, or it has the potential to have a multitude of different effects, where inflammation is one of the issues uh, that's causing the the symptom or causing the condition. Um, so it can be extended to things like rheumatoid arthritis or uh, other pain states or mental health issues um, because it is being potentiated by the cytokines that created as a result of um, vagal issues, um, which I found fascinating. I mean, even we talked about the microbiome. Um, there's some research that demonstrates if you have rhamnosis uh, bacteria in your gut, um, that's actually how it improves uh, anxiety um, and depression uh, subjectiveness. And if you perform a vagotomy, so that's where you cut the vagus nerve in a rat, um, the rhamnosis bacteria doesn't have the same effect. And we know the vagus nerve is actually central to how what's going on in your gut can have an impact on your brain as well. Yeah, so for, and for the folks listening who don't know what the vagus nerve is specifically, so it comes from... Uh, the word, you know, vagus means vagabond. It's the wandering nerve. We have 12 cranial nerves, right? Um, and the vagus nerve is the 10th of the cranial nerves. It's different from the other 12 in that all of the other, or the other 11, that all the other 11 are only um, promoting activity and nerve signaling from the shoulders through the face and through the head. And then the vagus nerve, like, you know, the nerves going to the corners of the eyes or to olfactory nerves or auditory nerves or trigeminal nerve. And then the vagus goes down through the throat, through the trachea. And so it's already descending below the level of the, the, the neck into the heart, into the lungs, into the diaphragm, into the liver, into the spleen, into the pancreas, into the stomach, and into the intestines. And so it is, is, this is the body-brain communication through the vagus nerve. And that's one of the things that it does. It picks up signals from the body, sends it to the brain, tells the brain what's going on. So when we talk about rhythmic breathing and IBS, what's happening is through the rhythmic movement of the abdominal region, we're sending messages of rhythmicity and safety through the um, abdominal nerves, of which we have 100 million of them, as many as in our spinal column. And those messages are going through the vagus nerve that attach up into the transverse colon and other high areas of the, of the, diaphragm, of the uh, intestines up to the brain, sending the brain messages of safety and rhythmicity through this rhythmic breathing. So the vagus nerve is carrying the messages from the microbiome, from the, all the nerves in the intestines up to the brain to tell the brain what the condition is going on down here. And so then the same with the heart and with the blah, 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 blah. So, um, so that's one of the interesting things about how yoga is really effective for um, fine-tuning or changing the signaling of the body because we're twisting this way and we're twisting that way. We're massaging the liver, we're massaging the spleen, we're closing the stomach, we're opening the stomach. We're closing the intestines down, we're opening them down. And all of this moving and massaging is sending messages 
up to the brain from the visceral body saying, hey, someone's paying attention to me. I'm not just being f flooded with fatty foods and, you know, with, and, and with stress and things like that, but I'm getting a nice massage now and I'm feeling good and stuff is getting released and all that messaging is going up to the brain and the brain is going, okay, yeah, I'm gonna respond now by, you know, sending, uh, I'm not gonna send signalings to release more adrenaline and cortisol. I'm gonna send some signals down of dopamine and of serotonin because things are feeling pretty good now. So you're gonna change the chemical balance um, of your body through signaling to the brain and the brain responding to that signaling. Yeah. So it's very, very cool. Yeah, it's super interesting. I mean, like, um, even through the nutritional... Is that all correct from a medical yeah, perspective? From a medical perspective, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know too much about splenic and hepatic massage, but it makes sense that if you're twisting and moving your body in different ways, it's not just the, uh, uh, your anatomy that's being stimulated. It's your baroreceptors that are sensing different pressure changes. Yes. It's your breath work. It's all of that in conjunction. So it's kind of like going back to the scientific reductionist approach. Even though I really enjoy talking about mechanisms and pathways, uh, it's a very dynamic process, yoga. And it's something you pick up in your book about all the all the different exercises that you do in yoga, whether it be chanting, breathing, movement, uh, mindfulness. Do you utilize the exercise and breathing in, in your practice and, and are there different methods for different sort of ailments? And There are. There are for sure. Um, some breathing patterns are heating, some are cooling, according to Ayurveda and according to the yogis. So if you have a problem with too much phlegm, for example, you'll do things like Kapalabhati and Bastrika. If you have a problem with heat in the body, you'll do things where you're primarily exhaling through your left nostril, which is said to be the cooling side. Um, so there are all different ways that the breath is associated with hot and cold, with phlegm, with people who have a hard time gaining weight, with people who have heart problems. And I think essentially what the breathing patterns are doing, the pranayama practices, is they're directly addressing our nervous system and they're directly addressing homeostasis. So you know, when we inhale and when we exhale, the respiratory patterns are starting from our brainstem and the other respiratory centers of the brain as well. And the vagus nerve is going to be controlling the slowing down and the speeding up of the heart as we inhale and as we exhale. If we are breathing in smooth, even patterns, we're strengthening the vagal break, which is slowing the heart down on the exhale and relaxing the break on the inhale so the breath speeds up. And this is very good for cardiovascular health, but it's also good for, in, for keeping inflammation levels low in the body. It sends messages to the baroreceptors wrapped around the carotid arteries to monitor blood pressure. And so really through regulated breathing, we're regulating the, you know, the deep aspects of our autonomic nervous system. So our autonomic nervous system is doing all the things during the day which need to be done so we stay alive, things we don't need to think about. Heartbeat, respiration, blood pressure, digestion, um, elimination, sleep. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and, and breath is one of the functions of brainstem, of autonomic nervous system function. So when we do conscious breathing, we are for a little while hijacking an autonomic nervous system function to do what to it? To help support it and restore balance to it. So for the kind of person who doesn't breathe well, we breathe shallow or we hold our breath a lot because we're stressed out, um, or breathing too fast because we're like really hyped up all the time. The pranayama practices will slow down the breathing, will stimulate these different aspects related to respiration, including the baroreceptors and monitoring blood pressure and different pressure changes in the body and regulate that. 
And then that helps restore balance to the body in all the different ways that it needs to be restored. So I primarily see the pranayama practices as working on the nervous system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a lot of evidence for that, actually. I mean, there was a paper that came out a couple of years ago. I think I spoke to uh, a friend of mine about it, about volitional breathing, which is just a fancy word for, say, mindful breathing. Yeah. And it was about uh, how um, it was actually called breathing on the brainstem. I Mm -hmm. remember the paper now is in the general neurophysiology or something like that. And um, it was all about how they measured EEG, so uh, electrical potentials that, are, uh, that we can measure using a, a swimming cap that you put on people's heads, um, and how that modulated neuronal activity. And you could uh, measure specific oscillations of neuroactivity activity when people are performing this mindful breathing exercise. And it's a very simple pranayama, essentially. Um, and that honestly gives me a lot more hope that if more people can see the scientific benefits of it, using the storytelling of the, you know, the language of science, um, the more people will be more, uh, be, not believing of it, but the more people will be entertained by the idea of doing it. Because if I, if I was to speak to my patients about breathing exercises for panic attacks or uh, anxiety, depression, a lot of it is met with skepticism, even those who uh, are quite open-minded. But if there is some degree of evidence that I can actually present to them, like this is actually, this is what it's doing to you, um, then I think more people will be willing to pick it up. And that's great for yoga in general. Yeah, it's good for people in general. I think it's a really good thing, and I think it's one of the great uses of science. Um, the, um, we know intuitively and instinctively that when someone is upset or stressed out or angry, we tell them to breathe. Like, how do we know to do that? We just know. Like that's, It's wired into us to know that you hold your breath when you're freaked out. Um, you know, you breathe really fast when you're angry or whatever so if a child is crying or upset you tell them to breathe so we know these things but now what if you you know if you're hungry you should eat some food and so now you say oh you're hungry eat some food but what kind of food should i eat well if you eat these particular kind of food you're not going to feel hungry later you're going to feel full now and it's going to last you for a while if you eat a bag of potato chips now or a twinkie you're going to feel really good right now, but you're going to crash and need more sugar and more salt later, and you're not going to feel so good. So why don't you try eating this wonderful meal of broccoli and beans and rice and potatoes, and you're going to be, your mind will be more clear and your energy and your glucose levels will be more even throughout the day. So then people say, okay, I'll try that, yeah. and they'll feel it. So the same with breathing. You know, you, in the beginning, you can say, oh, you just breathe when you get freaked out. And I say, well, if you breathe in this particular way, Uh, not only will you still be breathing like eating, but you're going to feel better for a longer period of time. And and this is what's occurring when you do that. So there are people researching that now. And an early study was um, on single nostril breathing. You put your thumb on your right nostril. You only breathe through your left nostril 27 times, four times a day. And this has been shown to improve spatial awareness. Right hemisphere function of the brain is to know know where we are in space and navigate that well and that through the right nostril breathing 27 times a day four times 27 times four times a day it improved cognitive abilities which is the jurisdiction of the left hemisphere now we have global activity as you know in the brain but there's some specialized functions as well so this was a study that showed okay if you want to improve cognitive abilities you need to activate more this left hemisphere. If you want to improve spatial awareness, knowing where you exist around the things in front of you, uh, the things that are around you, uh, spatial awareness is a very important part of self-regulation because, and it also improves proprioception and interoception. 
Proprioception is how the limbs of our body know where they are in space. So sobriety test, you hold your arm out, touch the tip of your nose, thank God I could do it. This is a proprioceptive test because drinking alcohol impairs proprioceptive abilities of the brainstem. So, um, the, um, so the right hemisphere is going to be very much the jurisdiction of spatial awareness, interoception, knowing how I feel inside, proprioception, how I'm navigating the world around me. And it's been scientifically proven through single nostril breathing. And so there are other breathing practices which are starting to show little bits and pieces of how we know specifically what we can prescribe to a person who needs something. For example, if you have a lot of stress and anxiety, you don't want to take long, deep inhales and hold your breath in. That is going to send pressure up to the baroreceptors, which is going to send a message to the brain that the pressure is off. It's going to speed up your heart rate. You're going to start to freak out. So you don't want that. You're already freaked out. So the opposite is long, slow exhales. Extend your exhale a little bit longer than your inhale because extended exhalations are going to downregulate the sympathetic nervous system, upregulate the parasympathetic, and induce a state of calm after a few minutes. You can even extend your exhale and pause for a moment and then relax and inhale, extend the exhale and pause, relax and inhale. And then and that brings the pulse rate down, brings the blood pressure down, brings mental activity quieted down. Yeah. So, so these are all things that we know in science mm -hmm. and they can be prescribed because you're a doctor yeah. <laughs> um, to people who you think would use them properly. I think I need to learn a bit more about pranayama. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm not well, that's saying why we have people like you. I'm not saying you should, you know, that, yeah. I'm not saying you should prescribe this to anybody. Yeah. Yeah, I'll yeah. be, you know, I'll I'll be the one who ends up getting sued. <laughs> um, there's a lot of things that are exciting about the future. I mean, you already uh, you've been doing the Science of Yoga festival for a, a while now. Yeah, we're yeah, science uh, yoga and science conference. Yeah. I think we're in year number three or four. And um, we have one in Stockholm in February, another in Austin, Texas in February. We just got an invitation to do one in Boston next year. We've done them in Zagreb in Brooklyn uh, with NYU, Tandon School of Engineering with Long Island University. Amazing. And what kind of, uh, what kind of research uh, do you guys talk about there? Is it all different sort of aspects of yoga or is it extending into different arenas? Yeah, different arenas. What Marshall and I do is we take a look around at the researchers who are doing things that excite us in the fields of yoga and meditation. And then we invite them to come speak to an audience of largely yoga teachers and healthcare workers. So we think of ourselves as like, you know, well, he's a scientist, but I think of myself as, um, as an end user yeah. of all this scientific research. Yeah. So we, we basically put the scientists together with the end users, which doesn't happen a lot, as far as I understand, in the scientific world. Usually with science conferences, they're specialized towards scientists. Mm -hmm. And what we want to do is we want to bring these scientists who have valuable information about the efficacies of yoga uh, and the limits of it as well, mm -hmm. and give that to yoga practitioners and yoga professionals so we can use it in our practices. And, and educate ourselves a little bit too. And if people are going to start out with yoga, um, for people who are interested in it but have got no uh, experience of it in the past or have no idea where to, where to even begin, what would your sort of advice to them be? Look around, see what yoga schools are close by to you, and go check them out and see if you like them. And yeah. if you don't like one of them, don't be turned off of it forever. Yeah. Think that you know maybe there's another yoga school that they might teach differently and I might like that one. Amazing. 
So try a few different things until you hit across something that works for you. There's a, a scientist named Holger Kramer, Dr. Holger Kramer. He's presenting at our Stockholm conference next week. And he did a meta-analysis of 303, I believe, um, yoga research papers. And 277 of those papers showed positive results. And the positive results were largely, and these were all randomized control trials. And the positive results were largely along the same parameters of the ones we talked about earlier. And so what his conclusion was, was that number one, yoga works. Uh, number two, the type of yoga that you do is based on only two things, preference and availability. And so if all you have around you is yoga taught at the YMCA, you go to that, it's, it's probably gonna work. Yeah, and sure. if you live in New York City or London and you have a thousand different yogas available on every different street corner, a lot of them aren't gonna be palatable for you. So try a few until you find something that works for you. Yeah, I draw a parallel with that with, with dietary sort of uh, interventions as well. As long as you're choosing one of many diets that have been shown to work, whether it be vegetarianism, semi-vegetarian, Mediterranean, the principles that underlying them are, are very much the same. It's about your propensity to stick with a way of eating that is more in keeping with your belief system or your ability to maintain it as well. So I think, uh, yeah, that kind of marries quite well with uh, the different types of yoga out there. In Ayurveda, they say, it's not what you eat, it's what you can digest. There you go. So <laughs> I think it's probably the same with yoga. It's like not the kind of yoga you do, it's the kind of yoga you can digest. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Eddie um, and I'd encourage you to go to thedoctorskitchen.com forward slash podcast uh, part of the website and click on the video and watch that five minute video on the study that Eddie was involved in looking at uh, African-American patients and the impact of yoga on blood pressure. It really does paint an impressionable picture on, on why yoga is a potential effective tool and why scientists are actually looking at yoga in a whole number of different uh, specialties including gut health, immune health and mental health as well. Um, please give this a five star review if you enjoyed it, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the subject matters. Um, I think we meandered into loads of different topics and like I said at the start of this podcast, if you found it difficult to, to keep up with uh, what Eddie was talking about with regard to consciousness, um, the interconnectedness of uh, our world. I'd encourage you to to listen to parts of this podcast again because, like I said, it was a struggle for me during the podcast. However, when I look back on it and I, I listened to our conversation again, it made a lot more sense to me. Uh, and I'm not just saying this. I, I, uh, I, and this is why I kept a lot of our conversation in the podcast and I didn't just steer toward the science-based uh, parts of our conversation. I think it really, really did uh, uh, get to me and I think it was very impactful for me as well. So listen to it again if you didn't quite understand some of the concepts that we we're talking about. We do get quite philosophical, but I think it's a very important part of our um, our mindset uh, and very a very important part of our lifestyle. Um, and lifestyle medicine to feel that sense of connectedness uh, with other human beings but also with the, the general environment as well give us a five-star review check out the doctorskitchen.com uh, sign up to the newsletter we give two science-based recipes every single week and you'll find out about some really really interesting stuff that we've got going on in the doctor's kitchen through the newsletter be the first to know and i'll catch you here next week
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.